This is the PropTech VC Podcast. We give you unique insights into how innovative technologies are disrupting real estate. We interview top entrepreneurs, investors, and knowledgeable experts to share the inside scoop in this fast-moving industry. It's hosted by leading PropTech VC, Zane Jaffer. Let's dive into today's content. And at some point, um, there's always this balancing game between finding deals and raising capital to fund the deals. And there's always this imbalance, right? They have too much capital, not enough deals or great deals, but now you need to find the capital. Speaking as a family office investor, where you know I've invested in countless projects, I and countless fund managers too, all across all asset classes, not just real estate, but private equity, venture capital, stocks, you name it, right? The advice I would give, especially with regards to specializing, is you want to see that the person you're investing in knows their trade and can offer you something as an investor you can't get elsewhere. If I want to invest in multifamily across the US, I'm more likely to put it into a Blackstone or or another big fund. Whereas if I want exposure to this zip code and I buy your thesis and I believe you have experience and you can offer me something that no one else can, then that's compelling. And there are plenty of areas where the largest institutional investors just will fail. One of those might be in just the deal sizes, which we will talk about in a moment, especially the 10 to $30 million you know, purchase price range, which is something I've got a lot of experience with too, because I've done a lot of deals in that, in that, in that transaction size myself. Um, or it might be that this person really understands this particularly nuanced asset class, and I really want exposure to that, yep. right? Or this geography. I, I want exposure to that because I can't get it elsewhere. So that's the advice to someone trying to break in. Have a strategy. Don't play Monopoly with the mindset of I'm going to buy everything I land on. Uh, and, you know, you're going to run out of money eventually. Ha- have a strategy in mind and stick to that. Buy those yep. train stations, you know, if that's what the yeah. goal is, and focus on cash flow. Or go after the big one hits, Right. And, yep. and own, own, I don't know, you guys call it boardwalk in the UK. We call it Mayfair. That, what is it? The blue side of the monopoly. Yeah. Boardwalk. Yeah. Boardwalk. 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 That's right. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about um, as people start to break into real estate, one common way they do it is they start buying single family residential. That's the most yep. typical way most people break into real estate. They find a zip code. They study that zip code for at least 30 days where they've looked yep. at every transaction that's going on, whether they have a broker's license or whether they do it, however they do it. They buy single family rentals because the purchase price is low enough. They can get some type of you know good financing and they do that a couple of times. And then eventually you realize, oh, it's not so easy anymore to get access to loans. Um, people then try to branch out and they're going to duplexes, triplexes. Multifamily feels like a completely different world because now you're dealing with you know, um, you might not necessarily have, uh, with residential, you might fix it, you might flip it, and you might sell it to someone who emotionally wants to live there. Whereas now you're dealing with multifamily, you're dealing with potential institutional investors. It seems like a jump that's impossible to make unless you have access to a lot of capital. What is your sort of, talk to the viewer who, who sort of wants to go down this path or is already down the path of owning single family and wants to graduate. What, what, what's your take on how, how to do that? Is it worth graduating even? So I, I think something you alluded to that, that, that is very, very true is the fact that, you know, a lot of these people are looking for, you know, what's the secret sauce and how do I get an edge in single family? And I think while it is the largest asset class in real estate or one of the the overwhelming majority in single family are owner occupants. So on one side, you have the pool from Wall Street of, okay, well, we just allocated $5 billion to buy, you know, X thousand many homes across the United States. Well, the problem there is that home ownership in the United States, 
you know, from for for the overwhelming majority of America, it's the largest investment somebody's ever going to make, and they live in it. And so you're competing with two buyers. You have the owner occupant who is buying this home to live in, like you said, and then you have the institutional buyers sprinkled in, and then you have some kind of you know the sprinkles on top is the like you said, the person who's trying to graduate into a larger asset class, these kind of mom and pop single family rental investors. I think single family rental investing has a very kind of uh, intriguing look and it's kind of the bright, shiny diamond. And once you dig in and get involved, a lot of these things become very overrated. Yes, the deal is easy to do. I'm thinking, why did I do this? You start wondering to yourself, what possessed me to do this? Exactly. You start thinking, okay, well, hypothetically, if my tenant leaves, my occupancy is now at 0% and I have 100% vacant property where I'm still paying property tax and insurance and everything else involved. It's a very inefficient kind of business unless you're doing it at scale. And to do it at scale, you need the institutional capital who frankly, and unfortunately for the small guy, has a very low cost of capital. You and I will never go do a 2% cap rate single family rental deal because we could take our money, put it you know, maybe prior to now, but put it in the 10-year treasury and not do anything and make the same return. return. And Jeff, that's that's exactly it. People are now looking at this asset class as an alternative to bonds. Yep. It's it's that that's how bad things have become. Um, yep. And it's become an asset class that's in vogue. And it's hard for you as an individual to to make money without the, the scale. It is. And, and, you know, I think a lot of guys do find success as merchant builders where, but now you're in the development space, you know, Sure, you can buy a, a large acreage of assemblage of land and build 50, you know, brand new spec homes. Absolutely. But that's not the business of SFR. And I think SFR, like I said, it has, is a very kind of grass is greener on this side type of business where a lot of people fall flat on their face because they think it's as simple as buying an asset and what's my rent going to be. And to the people who are looking to graduate, right, like what you said earlier, a lot of these people learn from their mistakes, they're on their third home, they get it. But- you know, clipping $250, $300 per unit, you're not going to, you're not going to retire. You know, it's, it's a good little, you know, piece of cash flow, but you're not going to scale. And if this is a full-time business, it's very hard to compete in that. And so I think that the people who are graduating into small multi, frankly, they're looking at it the right way. That's the first step. Cause I think that's where most people start to look. And I think that's the right approach. And I really like small multi because a lot of institutions have yet to touch it. And I think there's a variety of reasons. I think by a, a large institution or capital allocator like a Blackstone buying a thousand homes, they can allocate a big piece of you know change by a thousand homes. And if 200 of them are not in the condition they assumed, well, they write that off. And it's very efficient to have a square box with one tenant inside of it, know that the, you know we're going to replace the mechanicals, the roof, and the kitchen, and we have this little box that pays us rent. Whereas with small multi, you know one unit could be way below market rent, they're losing a lot of money on it. One could be, you know, the original renovation from when this building was built. And I don't think these institutions have the efficiency to go in and look at these deals on a each unit, unit by unit basis in like a seven unit building. And I think that creates a very large opportunity for these single family investors who are already used to wearing a million hats. So when you migrate into that space, you cut out a lot of the you know, institutional smaller side owners such as yourself who kind of operate in the 10 to $30 million space, you know, for somebody like you, you found scale, you found efficiency. There's really no interest for you to touch an eight unit deal. The single family, uh, you know, rental guy who is used to flipping homes or has found efficiency in SFR, 
he's probably not going to go play in that sandbox because he found his stride. But I think given the overwhelming majority of people who kind of don't get what they want out of SFR and try to migrate into small multi, it's the right approach. And I would say that my advice for those people is start with a duplex. You know, if you've done one unit, you you I promise you can do two. And it's really not that different. And as you kind of understand what it is to have two, then you go to four. And, you know, anything under five units is a very uh, similar financing structure to single family residential and kind of becomes hard to finance. Anything over five becomes commercialized. And there's all these FHA and Fannie and Freddie and kind of, you know, debt brokers that can help you find this good debt that's very favorable and allows you to scale. Um, and, you know, I, I, without kind of getting way too ahead of myself and people who are just getting started, I, I think I would say find a duplex, find a triplex, find a quad that is relatively turnkey, that's in your backyard, that is is manageable. And, and, and when I say manageable, I mean, uh, the tenants are in place, the property is not falling apart. This is just a, a buffer. I'm talking about the property manager who will pick up the phone calls about the broken toilets, who will pick up the phone calls about the rent. And you will start to understand how this thing generates cash flow. How do I make it more efficient? How do I cut my insurance cost? You know, if I replace the, you know, $500 and I paint the hallway, all of a sudden the building becomes more appealing. And now I just raised five units of rent or four units of rent, $25 a month. And when you put a cap rate on that, that's a very powerful tool where you don't get that in single family. And the problem with single family that a lot of people don't talk about is that when these buildings are appraised, you can make this house the nicest house you've ever seen in your life with the coolest kitchen, the coolest bathrooms. It doesn't matter because when the bank goes to appraise it, it's going to go based on what the building, uh, the house sold next door for. Whereas when you're dealing with anything five units and up, these are buildings that get appraised on their income. So if you find a building that's in disrepair, the owner is out of state, they stay, they haven't touched the rent there in five years, and you know one bedroom is renting for a thousand in a market where it should be five hundred. Well, now you raise them to five hundred dollars, and it's a lot harder than I'm saying. It's not as easy as it sounds. But when you go and you do what it takes to rent four units for five hundred bucks, you know that's two thousand dollars per month in additional income. When you annualize that and put that on a cap rate, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars in value and positive equity that you are creating. You know, that tool and that kind of leverage doesn't occur in single family. And, and I think that's the mindset shift that's required. You could become an expert on single family and I, I don't discredit that approach. I think it's a wonderful approach. It's worked a lot for many people. And I think um, it's a safe approach too in some ways. If you eventually stick at it and you're patient and you're not trying to get rich quick, you will build a, a good-sized portfolio that produces cash flow, potentially selling it due to appreciation or to an institutional buyer. But when you come in and you think, oh, I should repaint the walls this color and I should put granite countertops and I should put the best stainless steel appliances and put the best plywood flooring and you know do this, do that. You're not gonna get rewarded for that in the multifamily space unless you push rents up. You then right. become ruthless and you have to focus on the game is different. The game isn't, what do I think this market likes? You know, No, the game is, these are renters. Are they gonna pay the premium? when I spend X dollars improving things. And that's the game. Right. As you said, improve rents by X, increase your NOI. You've got tremendous leverage because everything trades on a cap rate and you build you know, a fantastic multiple on your equity. Different game. And this is why, and I want to hear your opinion on this. This is why I think residential real estate agents really struggle with understanding how 
commercial real estate is valued, you would think that, oh, let me, let, let, let me get the opinion of a, you know, a residential real estate agent. They definitely know like real estate's real estate. No, very different asset classes, entirely commercial versus resi. Do you, do, do you have a perspective on that? I do. And, you know, I, I just want to kind of real quick without going backwards, I do want to say that I'm obviously biased to small multi and I'm not bashing any single family renters at all because I have a lot of actual friends in my network and people that I know that have built a tremendous business off of single family renters. And I applaud these people because I would never have the patience to do what they do. But I'm biased because I said, like I said, I like shortcuts. And I think that the leverage and the power of a cap rate and the power of, you know, a different way of appraising these things, you know, to me is more appealing. Um, to answer your question, some, something that I've seen is, is a fairly common trait, especially with residential realtors, is, you know, I saw a deal the other day where somebody said it was a duplex. And, hey, look, you know, there's so much upside if you renovate this and this and that. Uh, you can bump rents X and you can increase the value of your property. Well, you know, I bet you if I were to actually call on that property and say, do you understand the fact that it doesn't matter if I put nicer countertops or rents? Sure, I'll increase my rent, maybe. But at the end of the day, if I buy this thing for 300 and I spent $25,000 per unit making each unit the nicest units anyone ever seen, am I, the main question is, will I recuperate that, uh, you know, that, that CapEx? And the answer 99% of the time in this asset class is absolutely not. Because unless your neighbor's duplex sold for the same thing, then you're sinking money into this property. You'll raise your cash flow a little bit, but you are you. What you just did is you just set the clock back ten years for your return because you spent money that you're not going to recuperate. Whereas if you did that on a six-unit building, um, and there's a very easy approach to this. You know what is the what is the market rate rent? What does it cost me to get there based on finishes and capex? And can I refinance all of the money I put in plus more? The answer to that, but most likely yes. You know, assuming you're not in an overheated market where now it's a little bit more ch challenging to do that. But you know, I, th I think something that residential realtors and resi-mercial realtors, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good ones out there. It's just that they're doing a disservice to investors and to sellers because there is no one who can hold their hand through the space that we're trying to play in. And kind of the value that we're trying to bring, you know, as yield easy and, and you know, once we're live is somebody who, like you said, is graduating from SFR. Maybe it's somebody who already owns 100 units scattered through 10 different buildings. And the biggest problem, you know, we did a, we did a poll on LinkedIn recently. Um, and it was like, what was, what's the hardest part of small multifamily in this kind of universe? And we had the options there as managing, financing, um, you know, agents, and then sourcing and acquiring. And the overwhelming majority, I think it was 70% voted for sourcing and acquiring. And I think a lot of the problem is a lot of these deals go on the same platforms and marketplaces and listing and MLS you know, services as a single family residential home does. And the people who are seeking these deals, they're not looking there because, you know, and, and there's almost this like bridge of like, here's where the deals are, but here's where the people are searching and they're in two different universes. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I think residential realtors, while I applaud their effort and I am one and I was one, I think that somebody does need to come in and really own this space and have an understanding on underwriting and how returns work to make this market more efficient. Yeah, the only thing I'd, I'd probably um, debate with you about would be that um, you've got to be careful on spending CapEx on either side, whether it's residential or multifamily. If you do it wrong, you can set the clock back significantly. Uh, Absolutely. If you don't do a if you don't invest in CapEx though, and you try to be too cheap, you know, you're, you're also shooting yourself in the foot there too. 
Um, The biggest naive mistake you can make, especially when you're crossing from one side to the other, is um, you're not dealing with buyers as much anymore. You're dealing with renters. And your buyer might appreciate all the landscaping and everything you do on a residential. And I'm, I'm talking about these homes where this is often the story in America, right? Even around the world. Someone lives in a home, the realtor comes in and says, you should invest some money to do it up and sell it. And it's a shame because it's like, you've lived in this home. You should have spent that money anyway to enjoy it, right? Now it's yep. working. If you do enough of that eventually, it's very easy to come into multifamily and think, wow, these apartments are in total disrepair. Let me bring my magic that worked in the residential real estate world and make this stunning class A. If the market doesn't support it, if the bones are not there, if the amenities are not there, you are throwing your money down the drain. And I've I've done this personally when I started out and it's a painful lesson to learn. You can also, you know, kick your returns back significantly the other direction in multifamily too. Hundred percent. You know, and and I, I agree with that as well. I mean, you know, something that I actually one of my earlier mistakes was I remember when I would go into renovate and go to Home Depot, I would almost put aside the fact that this is a business and oh, what what would I like? You know, if I were to live here, what would I like? And it's you know these costs add up very quickly when you're talking about you know something as simple as two dollars a square foot flooring or $4 a square foot flooring. Sure, maybe in my family home, I would like the luxury one and I feel I can afford it to myself. But at the end of the day, this is a business, you're there to make money and you're there to provide a positive tenant experience. And if you're not gonna get compensated for the extra dollars you're putting in, then there is no sense in doing it. So I I agree on that. Yeah, fantastic. Jeff, this has been a, a great fun conversation. If anyone wants to reach you, how do they and what type of, uh, what are you looking for from any of our listeners? How can they help you? Yeah, so uh, we are gearing up for launch of our startup, Yield Easy. Anybody can find me on LinkedIn. It's Jeff Gopstein, G-O-P-S-H-T-E-I-N. They can check us out at www.yieldeasy.com. It's one word. Uh, it's just a landing page now with a sign-up sheet for early access. We're going to be up in about two weeks uh, for a beta and full launch in about 30 days. My email is jeff at yieldeasy.com. Feel free to connect with me, ask me any questions, potential listings. We're going to be live in Philly. So if you're in the PA, Philly area, we're looking to get into Boston and New York shortly thereafter. We'd love to connect. Um, you know, I'd love to have a conversation with any angel and prop tech people in the space and you know, much like Zane, I don't think anyone's going to come close to the value that Zane's added for me in the in the past couple uh, days and weeks. But uh, you know, anyone kind of in this space, love to network with and and get feedback and and poke holes through my business plan and such and so forth. And if there's anything I can help, you know, in kind of given my experience, if there's someone I can connect you to or something like that, I would love to do that as well. Yeah, and Jeff, you know, we have all types of people on the podcast. We don't often bring people as early stage as you are, but, you know, your, your wisdom is great. And reminds me of a funny anecdote. Uh, you know, when I started my company, I was on a couple of early podcasts too. And it was like, you were just about to launch. And I think, wow, two years later, the company became huge. And three, four years later, you know, even bigger. So this might be a nice relic to capture to see, you know, as you launch into New York, Boston, and throughout the U.S., uh, we can follow your success. So uh, best of luck and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Zane. I'll talk to you soon.